Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And together we find ourselves in the home stretch of Spooktober. And uh, <laughs> as, as I learned while writing this, um, this week's subject is legitimately terrifying. <laughs> Help me. So, um, Anna, mm. do, you, do you have any thoughts on being buried alive? Are, are you an Edgar Allan Poe fan? Those are two very different questions. Um, I do have thoughts on being buried alive, mostly along the lines of please no. Um, And I am an Edgar Allan Poe fan, although the the story that you're referring to is the Telltale Heart, right? Which is not one of my faves. I'm talking about, well, no, I mean, this this came up several times um, yeah, in his work it's, but it's a thing most, for him the most salient of edgar Allan Poe's stories to this topic is the premature burial oh that's the title yeah wow, now i feel like a real dum-dum <laughs> no i i like the works of his that i've read although i like his prose better than i like his poetry but well i mean those are nobody's those are arguing thoughts. with you there <laughs> yeah, not that uh, not that he was a bad poet but um while writing this episode i um realized that i have some thoughts about being buried alive that i um repressed it's really scary (laughs) it's a very scary idea well in um so did you ever have like career days and stuff when you were really little i don't think so well, I remember in first grade. That's why I became an archaeologist. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember in first grade, I don't think this was a career day because how would you get like two classrooms full of seven-year-olds to sit for like anything long enough to count as a day? Uh, a career but, moment. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember there were two two parents that came in mm-hmm. um, and these and I know. <laughs> And I only remember the one because it was like imprinted upon the other. Um, So somebody's dad was a taxidermist. And so they thought that would be like super cool to like come in and talk to the kids about taxidermy. So he brought um, his like examples, some some examples of his work. His portfolio. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And there was this... um, I, I got to tell you, this isn't the story I was expecting I for this episode. It, I think it was a raccoon. <laughs> that was, you know, like, ha! like <laughs> in like doing kind of pose. It was <laughs> it was doing kung fu. <laughs> you know, like you know how like yeah, they yeah. Well, well, I don't know fu. if you're familiar with taxidermy. It's often done in like poses, like kind of like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. fearsome poses, and so mm-hmm. like, fearsome raccoon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, and then somebody else's father is a coal miner. Mm-hmm. Um. And so this is where I thought this was going. And so, yeah. And so the dad, the dad was talking about being a coal miner and he was talking about coal mining. And there is just like something. Some people just have a gene for telling kids stories (laughs) that you should never tell a child. (laughs) And this guy had it. This guy definitely had this gene. And so he was talking about doing coal mining and um one time the roof fell in yeah as as happens happens. and so this is something that was like this has affected people that i know Mm -hmm. uh, like mining accidents and things um and like large-scale tragedies uh, but yeah, this guy just like straight up told us about how a few of his coworkers got like buried alive uh, in a coal mine. And, and I was were, like, you were seven. And I was just staring at the <laughs> raccoon. <laughs> just like, 
Kelly just like focus on something to be like, mm-hmm. get me out of the situation. And I just remember staring at that raccoon and it's glassy little eyes staring back at me <laughs> as I was just like, I will never go in a coal mine. <laughs> um, Woof. So I forgot a lot of that. And so thankfully this of, of my own free will that no mm. one else told me to do. Yeah, I know. I, I certainly didn't. I, I, I did this. For this. Yeah. I did this to me. But I have to say, you did this in a way that I'm really excited to talk about. It's not sort of ghoulish excitement about the misfortune or, or deaths of others. That's not certainly not the tone we've got here. And I'm super stoked to talk about forensics. We're going to talk about forensics. Great. Yay. So, um... A lot of today's episode is informed by a master's thesis titled The Live Burial, a multidisciplinary approach to the identification and exploration of live burials by, get a load of this name, it's a great name, Esmeralda Lundius. I love that name. Ah, um, so I've included a link to it. Um, she has it posted on academia.edu. And I encourage you to check it out if you're still interested in learning more after our time together today. Mm-hmm. Um, a word of warning, though, there are images. Mm-hmm. And speaking of images, we're going to paint some pretty scary pictures with words today. Um, yep. we're, so we're talking about people who have been buried alive. Just there, there you, it is. If you somehow missed the first five minutes of this and also the title. Hello. Hello. Welcome. So live burials or premature burials occur today in situations like avalanches or earthquakes. Um, but we're not talking about those. Instead, we're going to be discussing archaeological cases of premature burial, as well as some archaeological cases of definitely not premature burial, contrary to popular belief. Today is another case of us tucking scary stuff up against an ad break. Hmm. Um, So let me run through the set list real quick. Uh, I have this like very strong desire to get like enthusiastic consent from people that like I cannot hear. So like I'm just going (laughs) to learn this. And um, so... First, we're going to talk about what happens to the body after a live burial. Uh, Then there will be an ad break. And then we're going to talk about various archaeological cases of live burial. And then there will be an ad break. And (laughs) then we'll finish up with some false stories of live burial, as well as survivors of live burial. Um, And when we're done, can somebody please tell me if this was scary or if I just wrote about something that I didn't know I was this scared of? (laughs) So just... Do me that. You got homework at the end of this. Yeah. So, Anna. Hello. First first things first. Second thing Mm -hmm. second. Mm -hmm. Um, If someone has been buried alive, how would we even know? Uh, So let's just go ahead and jump right in. And can you tell me what actually happens in a live burial? It's time for forensics. Okay. (sighs) In forensic anthropology, there are a host of indicators of live burial, and those fall into the general categories of trauma, asphyxiation, and intoxication. Those, those are the states in which you can be interred alive. Since we're going to be talking about the less recently deceased, we won't be lingering on asphyxiation and intoxication. If you'd like to learn more about how asphyxiation works, by all means, check out Lundius's thesis and its bibliography. But instead, we're going to take a moment here to talk about evidence of trauma on skeletal remains. So this is quoting that thesis by Esmeralda Lundius. I love it. Quote, Within a live burial, blunt force trauma may result from pressure of soil or other material. Findings connected to similar events can be applied to assumed live burials. These include blunt force trauma to the chest or pelvic area resulting in mechanical asphyxia, two, defensive wounds in hands, and three, trauma in lower limbs. An interred individual would probably, as a matter of instinct, punch or scrape the enclosing dirt or coffin, actions resulting in defensive and offensive blunt force wounds in the upper extremities. If assaulted, a victim usually raises her or his forearms and hands to protect the face. Wounds indicating such behavior are important, since they may signify that the victim was conscious during a live burial. 
Abrasions and bruises may be present on forearms, wrists, and the back of the hands, knuckles, and carpal and metacarpal bones may be fractured. Fractures of metacarpal bones or boxer fractures occur when a closed fist strikes a hard surface. In case you're not sure where your metacarpal bones are, they're the ones that form the palms of your hand. Yeah. So these boxer fractures, um, if you have, have you seen Kill Bill Volume 2, Anna? No, I don't like Tarantino. Okay. Uh, so in Kill Bill I'll, Volume I'll 2, there's, that's fine. That's fine. I don't know. I'm not going to get defensive. It's just, I really like Kill Bill. <laughs> like that's, um, so in Kill Bill Volume 2, there is a scene that is a very famous scene um, of, uh, the bride, so that's that's Uma Thurman's character. Uma Thurman, having yes, been, yellow tracksuit. Yep, having been buried alive, like oh, in right. a coffin, and she she, she like basically like punches her way out. Um, and I've included a link to a clip that contains this on YouTube, mm-hmm. which I assume will, will stay there because it's it's used for like fair use purposes. Um, but it's a very it is a very like. Um, evocative scene yeah i think i have a memory of mythbusters testing this out uh to see if because you would be constrained in the amount of space in which you could punch like you can't really whine if you're in a coffin and the lid of the coffin is pretty close to your face like the like the physics of it well yeah but like the this is something that she was taught to do at the temple Mm, where you go from like where so for the listener at home i'm now showing anna Uh um there's like the lid of the coffin and you put your so you put your fist your fingers you extend your Uh your fingers so that it's touching the thing you're going to punch and you just like punch it's a it's a like sort of almost a spiritual practice rather than a like punching practice it's Mm. it's like it's something that is um, beyond, beyond like the the realms of reality. But well, maybe I should watch Kill Bill. I really like Kill Bill. I just that's fine. You're allowed to like. No, I just things. I just like the, this is just like me being like I really like it. Um, and I it's forgot. just that everything else that's Tarantino that I've watched up in like I don't like. I mean, this. you Even might like not while like I'm it. watching it. Yeah, you might not like it. Um, mm. but I I like a lot of his like earlier. The first, mm. I like the first half of his career, um, but okay. uh, so that just might be like a good. Um, I think Visual? it's just it, yeah, it's just and also like Lindius includes like a like a bit of still in it, and I was oh. like, oh yeah, <laughs> I remember <laughs> that scene, and then I went and watched it, and I was just like, ah, the halcyon days of two thousand three, mm. right. Oh, it's continuing to quote from Lundius. Defensive wounds may result in fractured fingers and nails accompanied by lacerations and contusions, while offensive wounds are usually composed of contusions and fractures to the knuckles. Lower extremities may be subjected to blunt force trauma when an interred person tries to free her or himself from a confined space by pushing, pressuring soil or other material upwards. End quote. When it comes to someone's remains, archaeologists often only have the skeleton available to try to reconstruct what the circumstances surrounding their death might have been. What makes it even harder to determine whether someone was buried alive hundreds or even thousands of years ago are the taphonomic processes that have been at work since the second they were buried. And we discuss taphonomy in our Oops, All Buried episode from way back. But if you haven't checked that one out yet, taphonomy refers to the forces at work that affect decomposition and preservation of anything that enters the archaeological record. So as soft tissues of the body decay, the skeleton shifts without all the little bits and pieces that hold it up and keep it together. So we talked about this a little bit in one of the episodes that we did that included the story of the Persian princess mummy hoax. And one of the ways that they determined that this was not an ancient mummy was that they looked at the bones of the inner ear, which are these three tiny, tiny bones, the hammer, the anvil, and the stirrup. They have Latin names. We're not going to go into that, but they're connected by tiny little um, ligaments. And those ligaments, if that was a legit mummy that was thousands of years old, those wouldn't be, wouldn't be there, but they were. And so they realized that this was very much not an ancient mummy and in fact, a recently deceased person. So bones are connected to one another 
and to muscles by ligaments and tendons. And as those loosen and eventually disappear, um, things like the rib cage will flatten and the pelvis will collapse and push the sacrum forward. The sacrum is um, right at the back of your pelvis. It's what your tailbone is attached to. If a person is buried in a coffin or other kind of roomier than soil environment, more bones can shift. Femurs and patellae, so your thigh bones and your kneecap bones, will roll to the side, as will the cranium. And famously, the mandible will go slack and make it look like the person was screaming when they died. So often you see pictures of skeletons or mummies where the mouth is open and it looks looks very scary, but it's just that the muscles aren't there to hold up the jaw anymore. So the jaw flexes down. There are other signs of possible live burials that might be visible to archaeologists, namely evidence of tool marks or soil compaction. Tool marks might be straightforward enough, but if you're wondering what soil compaction refers to, Lundius shares an example from something that true crime fans might be aware of, the Sacramento boarding house murders. While she does echo the cautionary note that the claims made in this report by a district attorney had no archaeological data to corroborate this observation, it sure is impactful, or maybe compactful. Oh. The following is a quote, you're welcome. The following is a quote from William Wood's The Bone Garden, colon, The Sacramento Boarding House Murders. Quote, He and the anthropologist saw an unusual compaction of dirt on either side of the victim's wrapped legs and a mound-like effect above the knees, as if the soil had been forced upward. A tunnel had been created between the victim's wrapped legs, caused by the packing of dirt on either side. It was possible that the victim had awakened from her drugged stupor and begun jerking her wrapped legs, trying to kick to the sides or above her. But she succeeded only in mounding the dirt, packing it up on either side. She was too weak or restrained to do more. End quote. Amber, come back. No, this sucks. This was the I first just, time. All this of this is first, bad. No, the first time that I read like that, I was just like, this sucks. I hate this. The thing that I think made me so upset is that like we can't actually say with any scientific certainty that like, Wood's description of somebody's description of what a coroner and anthropologist observed maps onto reality. And I think that that is so like messed up that somebody's like, I bet it was like this. Oh, imagine the suffering. And it just feels very ghoulish. Yeah. Ghoulish. Ghouls on ghouls on ghouls. <laughs> um, and so like we I don't know if that's what That's that person often, experienced around the time of their death. Yeah. Uh, but it does adequately illustrate the concept of soil compaction, which is ultimately why I use that because. Yeah. And, and this, this kind of attitude is, is often the objection that you and I have to some true crime stuff. I mean, but, I do have that objection to all true crime that does this. Yeah. I yeah, don't think exactly. you can, I don't think you can do this in a way that's like cool. Nice. Yeah. Well, now that we've gotten our heads around what happens from a taphonomic standpoint in live burials, and now that Amber is thoroughly regretting picking this topic and (laughs) writing an entire script about it, all 11 pages, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, we'll talk about some case studies of live burial in archaeology. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. All right, we're back. I'm sorry. Sorry. Here we go. So let's... God... 
Also, this is another thing that's going to like dredge up some of like my childhood like fears. Like this is really you're really this is like a being John Malkovich, but like me crawling through a filing cabinet. I didn't like that movie either, but I just don't like (laughs) I really just don't like movies that try to mess with my sense of reality because I already have a, a tenuous grip on that at best. See, I just, just like, like I don't need this. I just I like leaning into that. This no, being like can't do it. I need Muppets or sword fights or just banter. I'm a simple kind of kid. Well, okay. Let's talk about <laughs> something that I read about when I was too young. Um, I do remember reading this as a kid too and, and being like, oh I also remember where I was when I read this. Was there a raccoon? No, at but I was waiting to get my allergy shot. Oh. Oh, that that hits home for me I this was, week. What a nerd dweeby kid I was. Like in my allergy <laughs> shot with my like bad haircut and just Oh, oh baby Poindexter. Yeah. Oh God. So um let's let's do this. Let's start off with what is possibly the most famous case for of people being buried alive in archaeology. And um, something that I vividly remember encountering as a child and being horrified by. In a book. Yeah. It was in a book. Mm. Um, it was another Dorling Kindersley um, mm. Classic. eyewitness book. Yeah. And I tried like looking it up and then I just found a bunch of, I was like, maybe it's this one. And then I saw that it was published like later than I would have been reading them. And I like had this like weird crisis of like, what the, is time? The like <laughs> unstoppable march of time. Um, but not to get into other things I'm afraid of. Um, let, that's, let's just talk about Pompeii. Mm. So yep, let's do it. talking about Pompeii, uh, which was a Roman holiday town that was destroyed in an eruption of Mount Vesuvius near what's today. Ma- it's famous Italian Naples. <laughs> Mm. Bienvenuto a Napoli. I was hoping you didn't hear me say an M instead of an N. I can see your face, my dude. I know, but just, I didn't even make it through. I was just like, abort, abort, abort. (laughs) Near what's Naples, Italy, in 79 CE. So someday we'll talk about Pompeii in depth, but... For today, I want to talk about the excavations that took place in the mid-19th century CE, um, which is usually not the best time for capturing and preserving archaeological evidence, as mm. longtime listeners of the dirt will know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, however, in 1860, the director of the excavation, Giuseppe Fiorelli, developed a technique for understanding a very peculiar thing his team was noticing. Uh, When excavating through the mud and ash layers, they would find holes with skeletal remains inside, almost like they were cavities that the bodies would have fit inside. Mm. And what was, I got to hand it to him, a stroke of genius. Fiorelli was like, what if we fill these with plaster Paris? Will it show us what the bodies look like? Indeed, it did. See, Giuseppe. And presumably nobody on that team ever slept ever again after seeing the results of the 103 casts the team made. Yeah, they're they're they are haunting. Oh. So we have a lot of data about what happened at Pompeii from the eyewitness account of Pliny the Younger. Um, his his last work. Yep. No, no, that was his uncle. Pliny oh, right, the Elder. My bad. So Pliny the Pliny the Elder was like, I don't know, got to run. Well, he, he also his, wanted his to like, help his friends. He had friends that were trying to evacuate, but he strapped a pillow to his head and went on. Well, there he went. Yeah. So his his nephew, Pliny the Younger, wrote about right. it. Yeah. Um, and um, so we've got that. So that's cool that you got an eyewitness account. Mm. Um, it's a bummer, but it's cool that mm, you have yeah. somebody who was actually there versus a lot of historical sources, which are like 300 years ago, Alexander Lift. <laughs> Just like, thank you, historian. Thank you. Thank you, official historian. Um. So, but also geologists have a pretty good understanding of Mount Vesuvius and just volcanoes in general. And to other forensic evidence from victims of contemporary volcano related deaths. Um, so to put it briefly, there were uh, periods of explosions of volcanic ash and also of something I just heard about called Nuez Ardent. Way. So um, a Nuez Ardent is, Which I, bel- I think uh, translates to burning cloud. Glowing cloud. Well, 
Okay. Glowing, glowing cloud. Glowing, well, bur- yeah. I mean, burning sounds closer to what's actually happening. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I looked it up. And according to the USGS, the, US, the United States Geological Survey, mm-hmm. um, a, a Nuit Ardente is a turbulent, fast-moving cloud of hot gas and ash erupted from a volcano. Yep. They form explosive eruptions as columns of erupt as columns of erupted material collapse or during non-explosive er- eruptions when volcanic rock collapses. Nuées Ardents flow downslope into valleys at speeds that often exceed 50 miles per hour and temperatures of 400 to 1300 degrees Fahrenheit. Horrifying. They spread laterally, travel near the ground, and are often accompanied by larger rocks and boulders from the eruption. These materials collectively are better known as pyroclastic flows, and the term nuée ardente is now considered outdated. Or possibly just too French. Too French. So I had heard of pyroclastic flows, but nobody had ever described them to me as a hot gas avalanche. Which is how I saw it described elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And so this was the second time I almost abandoned the script. <laughs> yeah, it's really terrifying. I knew I knew that this happened, but I also had never heard the term Nui Ardon. Like what? Yeah. So so okay. <laughs> what uh what is what is what do you call it when someone's the cousin of your cousin? Like I'm not related to this person, but he's my cousin's cousin. Because I have a cousin's cousin who's a volcanologist. What? Yeah. He studies volcanoes. God. He did like a whole bunch of time in New Zealand just bopping around studying volcanoes. Uh, I, d- I, I doubt it? he listens, but like <laughs> Hey Jeffrey. <Cool. laughs> so um some of the people whose plaster casts Fiorelli and subsequent excavators, because more people have done this, um, mm-hmm. they appear to have been victims of the pyroclastic flows that swept through the town. So the other famous community that was destroyed by Vesuvius, Herculaneum, which is on sort of the other side, it's it's in the vicinity of Mount Vesuvius, but it's not like next door. To. Mm. It's not like the next train stop over. Um, so Herculaneum was more you have to affected. take a shuttle bus. <laughs> yes. Um, Herculaneum was more affected by pyroclastic flows. Um, hmm. And so I'll include an article from Smithsonian in the show notes that really gets. Wow. Right down to it in the headline. Wow. <laughs> Man, this sucks. Not pulling any punches, <laughs> Smithsonian. Smith- <laughs> Would you like me to the take he- this one? Yeah, please. Okay, I'm like getting dizzy. <laughs> yeah, the headline is Mount Vesuvius boiled its victims' blood and caused their skulls to explode. Subtle. Whew. And so you can read about that. It's very interesting. There are photos of human remains. Yep. Um, however, in Pompeii, more people were buried in ash. Yeah. Um, and which Anna pointed out to me before the show, most likely they were knocked unconscious. Um, but which is like, I don't know, a hollow comfort, but yeah, still maybe like, it's good. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's so, still so, very bad. So the cavities, the, the cavities that their bodies left behind, um, allowed for such detail to, as to see their clothing, their hairstyles and expressions. Probably um, most hauntingly their expressions. You yeah. Can see their faces. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it is uh, truly haunting. And I say that as someone who can confirm that I have been haunted by them for nearly a quarter of a century already. So, <laughs> great. Yep, there's that. So, that is... Sucks. That is archaeological live burial, but not necessarily anthropogenic. So, as for those causes for live burial, meaning people are doing it, there are cases whose evidence include restraining the interred in such a manner that perhaps they would have gotten back up without it. We're setting aside the sorts of devices used to keep the dead dead out of kind of vampire fears, and even setting aside those cases in which individuals were buried with stones in their mouth. I just saw something about that recently, Venetian vampire burials or something. Yeah. So we're not doing that. No. Let's take a moment to highlight a few cases of what archaeologists call deviant burials, which are thought to be employed for individuals whose behavior, status, or other identity markers disqualify them from the standard burial practices of their communities. There's so both the individual and the burial that is deviant. Yeah. So quoting, yeah, 
So quoting Lundius again, who sums it up very nicely, quote, At Capocolona, Italy, two graves were excavated, dating back to the 8th to 9th century, and found to contain remains of two individuals, with heavy sandstones placed on top. The remains presented lesions on the spine, as well as on face and cranium. Oh, that's rough. One of them was placed in a disproportionately small grave, while the other lay face down. A similar burial was identified at an Anglo-Saxon cemetery in Sewerby, United Kingdom, Due to the remains' position and the fact that a large rock had been jammed at the base of the victim's spine, the interment was defined as a live burial. At Hornsburg, Austria, a corpse interred during Neolithic times was discovered head down in a V-shaped ditch, indicating that the victim had been buried alive and died of asphyxiation. Why does that in particular indicate that? I would assume that because there was an absence of other stuff going on sure or perhaps okay. or perhaps those like uh blood force trauma mm. um, okay they didn't injuries yeah, that doesn't. you described mm-hmm. oh, put the at the top, up top. Yep. at Welwyn, hertfordshire england a male was found in a grave dating back to roman britain heavy rocks had been placed on his back his feet had been cut off remitted and positioned at a right angle towards another individual Yikes. These are just a few examples of deviant burials, possibly indicating live burials. Those are pretty rough. Yeah. And there were more. There are more. She talks about more. Oh, God. Um, so, oh God, moving on to something else in archaeology. But this is like really interesting. It's it is really interesting. interesting. It's just uh, it's tough to uh, to talk about it as a human being. <laughs> right. Um, so let's head to the Americas, and we're going to the Andes. I have seen some of these. Oh, gosh. So, <laughs> sorry. I'm reading from a review article by Maria Costanza Ceruti um, entitled Frozen Mummies from Andean Mountaintop Shrines, Bioarchaeology and Ethnohistory of Inca Human Sacrifice. Um, and I'm going to read a little bit of the intro. So this is live burials that aren't really burials so they're i mean they kind of are really we'll get into it okay shutting up the practice of human sacrifice has been known to occur cross-culturally throughout history humans have been sacrificed in order to celebrate special events to mark royal funerals in response to natural disasters to atone for sins committed to consecrate a special construction project or location and to ensure fertility and health Sacrificial victims have also been executed in order to serve as retainers to high-ranking individuals in the afterlife. Anna's going to talk about this in a second. Inca human offerings should therefore be considered as being commemorative, expiatory, propitiatory, and or dedicatory sacrifices. Those are some vocabulary words. During the late post-classic period in ancient Mesoamerica, the Aztecs embarked upon the practice of practice of ritual human sacrifice involving the removal of hearts in epic proportions rooted in the Maya Toltec tradition, uh, based on their belief that human blood needed to be continuously offered to the sun deity lest the god grow weak and not be able to continue his journey through the sky each day. Sacrifices celebrating the completion of special constructions were conducted for such projects as the dedication of the twin temples of Tlaloc and Huitzapochtli in Mexico, Tenochtitlan. Tenochtitlan. Okay, sorry. It's that was a tough sequence of words, but that last one is Tenochtitlan. Great. You you did the other ones perfectly. Thanks. Sorry. I'm still dizzy. The Maya Toltec sacrificial rites were not limited to the removal of the heart. They also included the flaying of the victim as well as the eating of his flesh. The cruelty of these very public sacrificial events presumably served to reinforce the power of the Aztecs in the minds of allies as well as potential rivals. In the ancient South America Andes, <laughs> evidence of human sacrificial practices has been found depicted on moche pottery. Um, uh, the iconography of human sacrifice taking place on mountains seems to have been related to agricultural fertility rights and to the management of water resources. But it was almost eight centuries later, under the rule of the Inca civilization, that the practice of human sacrifice on, on mountaintop shrines reached its highest level of cultural elaboration and expression. So I gave you that 
intro there and also in the show notes, I'm not going to get into this here, but in the show notes, I have a link to a story that talks about how um, the like longstanding, um, I don't know, interpretations that Mesoamerican populations did like oodles of human sacrifice that involved burying people alive and actually just the violence of it all has been overstated and that there's less archaeological evidence to support that degree of Mm. of like what one might describe today as cruelty um that's there's less of that in the archaeological record Uh, so i just wanted to like plug that here um, while we are talking about this side of the world. Um, but the study in Costanza Cerruti's article focuses on frozen mummies of sacrificial victims from the mountains of Huayaco. Yeah. Which is like 22,000 feet. More than that. Very high. I, I just like, yeah. So it's 6,739 meters. Yeah, these that's are high four miles. Yeah. Quejua and El Toro as well as the Aconcagua Massif. So these are like super high peaks in the Andes. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about, I'm going to read a little bit more from Costanza Cerruti to give you a sense of uh, what was up with this. And I recommend if this is something that like you're good with, um, go ahead and read it because it's a, it's a good review article. Quote, the practice of burying children alive or of suffocating them prior to burial is both compatible with the physical evidence of the Wiyayako children and the El Plomo boy. The reason for so the El Plomo boy is one of the mummies on one mm-hmm. of the mountains I mentioned above. Apparently, the reason for selecting this particular sacrificial procedure was rooted in the belief that only complete offerings were acceptable to a major deity. A victim who had shed blood would have been considered to be an incomplete offering in the eyes of the Incas. Um, The case of the Huayaco boy. I mean, I may be saying that completely wrong, but there's so many L's in that word. There are six. There are six L's in that word. There aren't many other letters in that name. Mm -hmm. Um, You're doing great. So it suggests that death came to him as the result of exhaustion or high altitude sickness or a possible or a combination of both before he actually reached the summit, Um, which, again, 22,000 feet. It's a big climb. Um, The relaxed position of his arms differs from the usual that mountaintop sacrificial victims typically show with their arms X'd over the body like in a like in a perimortem attempt to preserve body heat. Mm-hmm. Um, the fetal position of the body and tight wrapping of cords around his legs also could have been induced to facilitate the transportation of his deceased body to the summit. Additionally, the swab, ana- uh, swab analysis of the lips of the boy has demonstrated the presence of blood in the saliva, which can be interpreted as a sign of pulmonary edema which mm-hmm. is something that comes up with high altitude sickness. The sacrifice of children by means of burying them alive was still in use of the first decades of the Hispanic eva- invasion. Um, chronicler Ramos Gavilan reports that a 10-year-old Andean girl was found by a European miner still alive three days after she had been um, ritually walled inside a funerary tower uh, by the local chiefs of the village of Sikasica uh, near Caracoyo in the Bolivian highlands. Um, Antonio de Herrera Tordesillas account tells a young tells of a young Indian boy who sought refuge among the Spaniards in the Shausha Valley in the Peruvian Sierra after he narrowly escaped from being ritually buried alive in the in occasion of the death of a local chief. Which um, so you're saying like the the mummies that weren't really buried alive like in technically technically they were yeah as as um, immurement immurement I'll just be Which there is, in immurement sorry yeah you will be because you're going to talk about it yeah I am <laughs> uh, well that segues nicely from talking about uh, being ritually buried on the occasion of uh, a person of rank's death because another example of intentional live burials kind of having a role in maintaining the order of the universe is the concept of retainer sacrifice and we're not talking about when you're done with your tooth alignment after middle school you know that's not something that i can relate to me neither i never had braces yeah that's the one like one nerd rite of passage that i didn't yeah same i mean says the person who had a medieval castle themed bat mitzvah so (laughs) 
funny every time. <laughs> what a what? also like what a like not a great period. To, no, like go, like I like realize I'm, now I just, that I did like, not <laughs> is very tone deaf. Like in retrospect, but <laughs> I was thirteen, and that's what I loved. Wow, we've lost Amber for the remainder of the episode. So I'll, it's just you and me, listeners. I'll tell you later about the party favors. No! <laughs> they were little die-cast nights. Oh my god! <laughs> also, the venue really screwed up. Oh no! And, and the, like, there was, you know, grown-up food, but then the kid food was like, I don't know, a six-foot-long party sub, but it was like... <laughs> Here's your ham and salami. Oh my god! So, tables full of castles and pork products. I'm gonna I'm gonna come down from this by by sharing a, a just tangentially related. When I was in grad school, so I was in Near Eastern Studies, so there was a, quite a bit of overlap between us and the like um, Hebrew. Like, so like, a lot of like, people in the Hebrew Bible concentration were mm-hmm. also in like. Um, like Judaica and like Jewish studies. And so that program, <laughs> their, their coordinator like bought, like bought stuff for their like oh, their party. No. And oh. <laughs> she's like, nobody ate the shrimp cocktail. <laughs> and it's just like. Because God told them not to. That's, that's like the point of this department. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy! Oh mm. man! Oh. Well, let's. Um, man, that is a. Oh God! Yep. Yep. Ooh, thank you. I'm here for you. <laughs> uh, well, let's come right on down from that. Um, <laughs> retainer sacrifice. Oof. While there are plenty of examples of unrelated retainer sacrifices in ancient China, ancient Egypt, and even. You know it. You love it. The royal tombs of Ur, which we've discussed before. Let's pause for a moment to discuss an absolutely massive retainer sacrifice from a place we've mentioned before, but only in passing. What is today southern Egypt and the Sudan was once called Nubia, first by the Romans, who maybe took the name from Nub, the Egyptian word for gold. Others connect it with the term Nubares, the Greek name for people who moved into northern Nubia sometime in the 4th century CE. The other name that it went by for almost two millennia was Kush. The Oriental Institute, which they refused to rename, at the University of Chicago, which has an exhibit on ancient Nubia, says, quote, For much of antiquity, the region south of the first cataract of the Nile was called Kush. The name is known from ancient Egyptian, classical, and biblical texts. Whether it reflects an indigenous term is not known. The Kushites developed powerful kingdoms. The first was centered at Kerma, from 2000 to 1650 BCE, the later kingdom had capitals at Napata, 800 to 270 BCE, and Meroe, 270 BCE to 370 CE. Um, Duolingo is blowing me up for me to practice my <laughs> Greek. What does Paidze mean? Practice now! No, it means play. Calm down, duo. Pushy little owl. Yeah. Just... <laughs> Have you seen the, the um, I guess it's a meme, that's... Uh, text history and it's like a person texting like what are you up to not much just relaxing duolingo owl rips off his mask i knew it practice your words yes (laughs) yeah it's accurate it's very accurate it's a pushy (gasps) owl okay it is at kerma that we have an example of retainer sacrifice described by jacobus van dyck uh and as he writes in his article retainer sacrifice in egypt and in nubia quote In Nubia, retainer sacrifice is a recurring phenomenon from at least the classic Kerma period, 1750 to 1500 BCE, to the time of the kingdoms of Balana and Kustol, sure, 5th to 6th century CE. The kings of Kerma, just south of the third cataract, were buried in very large tumulus tombs, which were accompanied by massive mud-brick mortuary chapels. The tombs, excavated by G.A. Reisner shortly before World War I, contained not only large quantities of all sorts of luxury objects, such as furniture, model ships, yeah, sure, pottery, jewelry, and weapons, which but makes also... Which like, makes it sound like a restoration hardware like catalog. <laughs> like this is... 
Yeah, I was the, for some. I know what what it means when they say model ships, like scale models. But yeah. for some reason, I just pictured a shelf of ships in bottles. Yeah, like that's not what that is. It's a, uh... Uh, but also, various sacrificial animals, as well as the skeletons of sacrificed human beings who had apparently been buried alive. One of the largest tumuli contained the bodies of at least 322 people, a great many of them female, perhaps members of the royal harem. Who knows? That's conjecture. Retainer sacrifice was not just a royal prerogative here, however, for smaller numbers of victims have also been found in subsidiary graves belonging to court officials dug into the royal tumulus itself. These massive royal burial sites evidently represent the kingdom of Kerma at its most powerful. In the northern parts of the cemetery, human sacrifices are less in evidence. Reisner ascribed this difference to a period of decline, but Adams has suggested that it may instead reflect the period of development leading up to the cultural heyday of Kerma. End quote. And there is an illustration here of so many little stick figure skeletons. So, which reminds me... Once again, we're going to look into like the horror of of my mind. Um, this image reminds me of when tragedy struck my ant farm. Oh no! Which then, which also at that time made me think of Pompeii. Yeah. Did you do tiny, tiny little plaster casts? Oh my god! I should have. <laughs> That's the kind of kid I was. Um, no, I, I didn't. Know. So um, I had trouble finding much evidence for live burial among victims of retainer sacrifice um like yeah like retainer sacrifice definitely a thing yeah but retainer sacrifice of live persons harder for me to find any evidence for and also i was getting kind of burnt out it had been like several days of this so i was like yeah no, i would i would certainly love, won't fault you for that i would love for them not to have been buried alive um and so i wonder to what degree reisner was just like riffing a la sir leonard woolley and his descriptions of what happened in the great death pit that's or, what this was probably like says my yeah. mind so um and like, also, if I'm going to be totally honest, I thought that this entire topic was going to be another very scary and all but non-existent phenomenon that we could go, ooh, what's up with everybody believing in this? Um, which Sadly, sadly now. Yeah. So um, I wasn't so lucky. But that's not to say that every example of Liberio is accurately identified. Yeah, some of it might be kind of Thank spooky, goodness. spooky, wishful thinking. Not wishful, but like, ooh, yeah. what if it's this? Yeah. So when we come back from this break, we're going to talk about a few cases in which we've heard of live burial, but the evidence doesn't back it up for now. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for motion. With motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. Well, after that teaser, we're back and let's pop back to Roma now, but this time the city itself where we meet the Vestal Virgins or in Latin, the Westal Virgins. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I'm very funny. Oh, wary. Vestals were priestesses of Vesta, goddess of the hearth and vests. No, that's not true. The College of the Vestals was regarded as fundamental to the continuance and security of Rome, chiefly due to their responsibility for maintaining the sacred fire. Vestals were freed of the usual social obligations to marry and bear children, and took a 30-year vow of chastity in order to devote themselves to the study and correct observance of state rituals that were forbidden to the colleges of male priests. A 30-year vow of chastity, knowing stuff that men can't know. Love it. It's all stuff that I love. 
Man, I love it. <laughs> uh, their role in the survival of Rome and relationship with Vesta set them aside and marked them as holy. Also great. Yeah, sure. Just, I could have it all. <laughs> as you might guess from the quick intro I just gave you, they had two big jobs, keeping that fire burning and not breaking their vow of chastity. Failing in either regard was a huge problem, but for today's purposes, we're going to focus on the chastity thing. A vestal that had violated her oath was seen as the inverse of holy, and to bury her within Rome would be to introduce something impure to the ground. Rude. If a vestal were convicted of unchastity, <laughs> that's not the word for that. It's it's dechastity. She would be dressed as a corpse and transported in a closed litter to the Coline Gate, a liminal burial ground reserved for criminals. Ah, yes, the liminal criminals. There she'd be left in an underground vault with a couch, a lamp, and a table with a few days' worth of food and water, and then walled in through a process called immurement. This process ensured minimal contact with the impure Vestal, and no one could be directly responsible for her death. Plausible deniability, I guess. Yeah. You aren't the one that... You didn't... Nobody executed her. Yeah. She, she died. How'd that happen? So, ooh, scary, right? Well, over the years, the Coline Gate has been the subject of many archaeological projects, and we very much know where it is, but no human remains have ever been recovered. Did they do a terrible job? It seems that if this were the place to leave your impure criminals to die in Rome, there would likely be some traces of human remains found, even accidentally. So perhaps it's all just a story. And then we have a more recent example from the turn of the 19th century in Denmark in Buried But Alive, <laughs> interpreting post-depositional bone movement, anxieties over death and premature burial. The story of Amber writing this script. Uh, Sean Anthony tells a very interesting story of a very interesting lady. And the abstract reads, oh, I scrolled too far. <laughs> the, I'm sorry. The abstract reads, quote, the young, beautiful, and wealthy widow, oh, triple threat, Gertrude Birgit Bödenhoff was buried in Assistens Cemetery, Copenhagen, on the 23rd of July, 1798. But was she dead? Wow, that sentence <laughs> took a turn. <laughs> Family stories claimed she had been buried alive, but was found by grave robbers who then killed her to conceal their crime. Her skeleton was exhumed in 1953, and the unexpected position of it within the coffin was used to confirm the stories, which echo many similar narratives that, be that betray anxieties over death and premature burial. See all Victorian coffins. With advances in archaeological methods and forensic taphonomy, this conclusion requires reinterpretation. Mm, mm, forensic reinterpretation. Mwah. <laughs> The burial environment is not static, and the body and later the skeleton can move while undergoing the decay process. It's just a party in there. The position of the skeleton in burials excavated in the same cemetery from 2009 to 11 is used to review the Bodenhoff story. How does decomposition move the bones within a well-preserved coffin? Can some typical movements of bones in coffins be identified in assistance to advance greater understanding of what happens underground in the coffin? I, that was a very long sentence, and you really like started gunning for the interrogative, like towards the beginning of it. And your voice just kept getting higher and higher. Is the is the body moving in the coffin? Doing a little dance? Yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> you can check out the article. You're, let, let me let me start nice and low, so, just in case there's another question. So we recommend that you check out the article, but. Spoiler alert. She was almost definitely dead when she was laid to rest. So in the true manner of all academics reading any article, let us skip ahead to the conclusions. You read Quote, the intro. You read the conclusions. You look at maybe the, you the, go back to the methods, look at the data, yeah, look at the figures, yeah, skim the bibliography, call it a day. Quote. Far from being a place of rest, a coffin is a very active environment. Natural processes of decay in a burial and the Vanga voice. It's a Six Flags thing with the guy going. Oh no, I definitely heard the Vanga bus. Is that from Six Flags? Same thing. We've got different touch points. 
I don't like Six Flags. I hate amusement <laughs> parks. I hate amusement That's, parks, but I know I, that this ad. isn't this is another Tarantino situation. I don't care for any any theme parks whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. They frighten me. Same. I don't like them. Oh. Natural processes of decay in a burial and the collapse of the grave have the ability to move the body or parts of the skeleton into unexpected positions. The three central characteristics of the decay of a body in an intact coffin were present in the sample, but were affected by the preservation of clothing, soft coffin furnishings, or the sides of the coffin holding the bones in anatomical position. The potential for other characteristics of movement were also highlighted, particularly the displacement of the knee joint sliding in the coffin and vertebral curvature. Smaller bones displaced by water in the coffin and the rotation of the cranium could also be further researched to interpret post-depositional movement within the active coffin environment. <laughs> Although this is only a preliminary study of a small sample of all of the burials excavated at Assistens, and it is limited by the analysis being retrospective rather than undertaken on in-situ burials, it has a wider relevance. This is such an academic paper. The highly contingent and interactive factors evolved in any one single burial require caution when interpreting them, but can be used to understand the general environment of coffin burials, as well as to highlight unusual post-depositional movements that could point to human activity or even being buried alive. Stories of premature burial helped to situate the anxieties and fear surrounding death, and they created a parallel narrative to medical opinions and the expectations of ordered and rationalized modern cemeteries. A good story like Gertrude Bodenhoff's is unlikely to be forgotten, nor should it be. Instead of a confirmed case of premature burial, it can be used as an expression of society's fascination and fear with the subject in a period of anxiety over medical and social death. End quote. There are many, many, many more examples of live burials, both so real many. and alleged, and we'll include links to some in show notes. And in most cases, we've only highlighted one of several in a given source. So if there were ever a topic we could have used an it's a fake twist, well, this was it. Oh, man. <sighs> to wrap up today's episode, let's end with some survivors of live burials. Hey! Um, so these examples come from what I guess has to be this week's book club <laughs> recommendation. <laughs> well, the book is Jan Bondesen's Buried Alive, The Terrifying History of Our Most Primal Fear. Yeah. Anna's read one of his other books and it freaked her out. Well, it's just, it's not that the subject freaked me out. His manner of writing freaked me out because it was very clinical and so the book was, it was called Freaks and it, it was about um, sort of 17th and 18th century medical oddities. So like people who were sideshow attractions, basically. And he wrote it sort of kind of, it, it came across as unfeeling. It's like these were human people and he was just like, here are their traits. It's very oh, clinical. God. I didn't love it. I didn't love it. But, you know, I haven't read this one. So I, yeah. maybe it's better. But also it's about being buried alive. So yeah, well, I, I, yeah. already not great. <laughs> yeah. Which is why I say, I guess this is our book club recommendation. Because <laughs> like, here we go. We're sorry. Um, so Mental Floss did a piece on this book. Um, so let's look at a couple of cases. Mm -hmm. So this comes from four people who were buried alive and how they got out. Plus one that Anna found. That's very funny. No, we're only reading two. Oh. I'm not reading all four. So first up is Essie Dunbar. I already knew this story and I love it. Great. <laughs> Just excited to hear it. So in 1915, a 30-year-old South Carolinian named Essie Dunbar suffered a fatal attack of epilepsy, or so everyone thought. After declaring her dead, doctors placed Dunbar's body in a coffin and scheduled her funeral for the next day so that her sister, who lived out of town, would still be able to pay her respects. But Dunbar's sister didn't have to didn't travel fast enough. She arrived only to see the last clods of dirt thrown atop the grave. This didn't sit well with Dunbar's sister, who wanted to see Essie one last time. She ordered that the body be removed. When the coffin, lift, coffin lid was opened, Essie sat up and smiled at all around her. She lived for another 47 years. I love her. What? She's great. So the other person we're going to talk about from Bonison's book is Angelo Hayes. Yeah, I don't know. Definitely don't know. a French name, Angelo Hayes. <laughs> I don't know how to say that Frenchly. Angelo Hayes. <laughs> Angelo A. Um, anyway. Uh, so Bondison calls the case of 19 year old Frenchman 
Angelo A. Quote, <laughs> probably the most remarkable 20th century instance of an alleged premature burial. End quote. In 1937, Hayes wrecked his motorcycle with the impact throwing the young man from his machine headfirst into a brick wall. Oh, boy. Um, Hayes' face was so disfigured that his parents weren't allowed to view the body. After locating no pulse, the doctors declared Hayes dead, and three days later, he was buried. But because of an investigation helmed by a local insurance company, his body was exhumed two days after the funeral. Ah, uh, insurance. Right. So, much to those at the Forensic Institute's surprise, Hayes was still warm. He had been in a deep coma, and his body's diminished need for oxygen had kept him alive. After numerous surgeries and some rehabilitation, Hayes recovered completely. In Ooh. fact, he became a French celebrity. People traveled from afar to speak with him, and in the 1970s, he went on a tour with a very souped-up security coffin he invented featuring thick upholstery, a, foot, a food locker... A footlocker. Like he's yeah, franchising. It had, it, had a, a food, it had a footlocker, a Spencer Gifts, and an orange Julius. So it had thick upholstery, a food locker, toilet, and even a library. Huh. Cushy. Yeah. Well, good for Angelo. I'm glad he was all right. Uh, but hang on. Those were positive on, on balance, but I got one more. Man. I never... This is never, the energy <laughs> that I wished had been present throughout this episode. Yeah, well, they can't all be light and farcical. But never has such a picture been painted with so few words. And this is from, I mean, this is a legit news story, but the source I chose, uh, there were many, but I chose chad.co.uk. Um, and I remembered this news story because I have a colleague whose name is also Jeff Smith. And so we sent him this news story and he was just like, okay. Uh, so I got one more. Here we go. Jeff Smith with a G. Goff. Geoff Smith had taken on the challenge of breaking the world record for longest time buried alive in a wooden box. Period. Yeah. This story, it, like every <laughs> sentence just adds a layer of, of onto this. It's, okay. Jeff beat the European record set by his own mother of 101 days, and then went on to bust the American record of 141 days below the surface. This took place in the UK. He went into the box in the beer garden of the Railway Inn on August 29th, 1998, undertaking self-inflicted solitary confinement akin to being thrown in the brig, and stayed down there in his seven-foot-long box submerged in the ground, although not covered in earth, until January 18th, 1999. Jeff had only, only, a television, mobile phone, books, and family photos to keep him busy, and was passed food and drinks down a ventilation shaft, through which supporters also spoke to him and kept him company. Since then, he has become a grandfather, and people still stop him in the street, remembering their local hero, the human mole. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Cheers to you, Jeff Smith. <laughs> Why? <laughs> He found his thing and he did it. Although the story that I was reading went on to say, like, he would never do it again. He thinks oh. about it and is like, no, thank you. I hated that. <laughs> so um, for more, but but not more Jeff Smith's, do check out, if you want, uh, Jan von Nissen's book, Buried Alive, The Terrifying History of Our Most Primal Fear. Yeah, let the title be a warning, you know. Yeah. This is not fun. <laughs> and with that, dear listeners, I, I raise my cup of cocoa to you because we have all survived another spooktober. We did it, everybody. <sighs> uh, and again, many, many thanks to Esmeralda Lundius, who is currently a PhD candidate at Durham, where she does Egyptian archaeology and magical practice. I Sorry, assume she Egyptian studies those magical things. Magical practice. Uh, I mean, okay. she might. I mean, blessed sure. Fallon to Esmeralda Lindius, if, yeah. if that sentence that I wrote. Truly, if, <laughs> if that ends up being the case. However, if in fact she studies Egyptian magical practice, that is also cool. She does do that. Well, if you want to learn more and your constitution can handle forensic photos and about 70 pages of the increasingly crushing sense of doom that comes from reading about this topic, then we highly recommend you check out her master's thesis. 
And we will be back in your ears next week with some decidedly more upbeat content. And then it is our regularly scheduled programming all the way through to the end of 2020. It may be the darker half of the year, listeners, but we'll be here to keep you cozy over on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or however else you might catch your pods. Yeah. And um, hey, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. And Mm -hmm. you might hear it at the top of the show. Anna will tell me that it's there and then read it to me because I'm scared to look at reviews. (laughs) our and listeners can, are very kind. They're so nice, but I'm just so scared of the feedback. The, yeah. The, yeah, just, yeah. To put it simply, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you can also find us on social media. Uh, we're over on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on the gram, aye, aye, aye. we are at The Dirt Pod. Yep, and if you want to see that all together in one place, you can head over to thedirtpod.com for all of those things, plus merch and a button you can click on to sponsor an episode of your choice that's not about scary, frightening things. Man, I mean, if it is, that. fine, also. Yeah, great. We love doing that. Uh, and you can also contact us either through the form on our website or you can email us at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. We've had some great emails from listeners recently yeah. and we love to get them. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for clutching your blankets along with us through Spooktober. And uh, we love you. Yeah. I look forward to doing this next year. Once we've had a year to recover. In 47 weeks. I look forward to revisiting this. Here comes the countdown. Yes. We love you. (laughs) Goodbye. Happy Halloween. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.